Alan Crane Productions, in association with the Emergent Life Studio, presents the Illinois State Collegiate Compendium, Academic Lectures in Business and Economics. This is Business Finance, FIL 240, for Spring Semester 2024. Today, Introduction to Bonds. This is the last lecture before midterm week. On Monday, we will review for the midterm exam. Now, the, that will be, there will be two parts to that review. There will be the part where I tell you what I think you should know. And that's pretty useful since I'll write the exam. I should know what's on it. And then I open it for you to ask me questions. And if you say, well, is this going to be on the exam? If it's not, I'll say no. It's, this is your chance to write your study guide for the midterm exam. And uh, just for the weekend, just to get you prepping up, I do uh, allow a 4x6 note card front and back for the exam, so you should pre uh, start prepping that for it. You're also, of course, uh, as I said, your uh, financial uh, analysis formula sheet, you can have that. And I expect you to use Excel for the exam. Those templates that I have provided, the one that will be of principal importance to you will be the present values and future values template in your files in, in uh, um, Canvas. So that's for you. Make sure that you know how to use it. And your study, you should be considering your notes as your primary. And then your quizzes, the midterm looks a lot like the quizzes. It's basically like, like a big, big version of the quiz, of the quizzes. And then, of course, the podcasts. And as I've said before, if it's in the book, but I haven't mentioned it, then it is not on the exam. If it's in my lecture, but not in the book, I guarantee you that I, could, I will be asking those kinds of questions. Some material is both I've talked about it and it's in the book, and those are obviously fair game. But use those and uh, use those as your pivots for your studying. And then on Monday, as I said, we review, and then on Wednesday, we test. So that'll give you something to look forward to uh, over the coming weekend. As far as other uh, matters are concerned, uh, yeah. 50 questions. It's 75 minutes. It's a class period. You should be able to finish it within about 45 to 50 minutes. I make sure that I prepare an exam and I assume that it will take you about 50% longer, or 30, maybe a third longer time than I would to take the exam. And I usually clock it in so that I can finish it within about 30 minutes to myself, and I give you plenty more time than that. So that's up and coming, something for you to get excited about for the weekend uh, and keep you busy. Now, as far as the content of the lecture today, this is Chapter 7. Now, Chapter 7 has terminology and concepts, and it has math. 
I will not ask any questions about the math from chapter 7. Math from other chapters is a fair game. But the math of chapter 7, I will put that off until after spring break. You need to focus on, it's about the first half of chapter 7 is what I deal with. The memorization, terminology, concepts, insofar as bonds are concerned. And we'll get to that in just a little bit, but before we do that, we'll have a quick look at the numbers. And we can see that this has just been its uh, a bouncing day, up and down. It's all been negative. So there's a general grouchy sentiment in the market today. It's not anything hugely awful. The Dow is down 21%. The S&P 500 is down 19, uh, 0.1, 0.21%, and the S&P is down 0.19%, and the NASDAQ, it's down enough to be noticeable, a little more than a half percent down. But, I mean, it's not anything terrible. It's just one of those days where we've got the bears are grumpy and they're out winning the happy bulls. So, but there's not much to say about it. Although, it just up and down today is information, good news, bad news, kind of trading back and forth through the day. Now, crude, it had actually, again, like it has done a couple of times, it keeps testing. Remember I told you that trading band between about 72 a barrel and uh, 79 a barrel? It keeps pushing up to that 79, and then it chickens out, and it runs back down below it. So it really is a, what we would call a resistance level. That's a term we sometimes talk about with stocks, commodities, bonds. It has a resistance level here at, at 79. But it is up there towards the top of it. Now, that, that can be taken negative because it'll mean somewhat higher, slightly higher gas prices, which you're seeing at the pumps right now. But it also might be something of a good sign. We are now seeing a recovery. And it may be, I would argue, we're in the early phase of an expansion. That would be attended by more trucks on the road doing deliveries of goods, more driving by people going places, so that more demand for gasoline and distillates like um, diesel and jet fuel might be a sign of a healthy economy coming. So just because the oil prices are going up a little bit, and this isn't anything insane like those $125, $150 per barrel prices, that might just be a sign of an economy that is recovering, that is coming uh, back and people are driving around more trucks, more trucks, fleet trucks on the road, getting stuff to stores uh, or to uh, industrial sites. So you can take it for that. Gold just doesn't want to go anyplace. It's still sitting above $2,000 an ounce, but it's not surging. So there's no evidence of some freak out apocalypse where the gold buyers are buying gold hand over fist. Taking it over here to the 10-year bond. The yield is definitely down, more than four basis points. That would mean that the price is up. That would mean that there is buying in the bond market. There's buying of bonds. So 
I, I want to make sure that you can do that, think your way through it. Okay, I see that the yields are down. That would mean prices are up. That would mean the demand for bonds has increased. That I would expect you to be able to walk through a chain of logic like that in a question on the midterm. Just make sure you've got it down. Well, for, uh, now on the other side of the world, Tokyo just didn't have any particular care. It started, it ended right about where it began, down about 0 .0, what, 0.08%, which is pretty much nothing. Uh, it, they, there just wasn't any clear direction, bullish or bearish. Although through the day it was bearish, by the end it had come back to about flat. London, on the other hand, as you can see in the early trading, the, before uh, the midday, there was a stream of negative news, bearish news, that kept pushing it down and down. But about midday, no more news, good or bad, was driving the market in a direction. So it pretty much just floated for most of the rest of the day. And that's just that uh, Newton's law of, motion, uh, of uh, linear motion. It, if there's no news, then it doesn't change its direction. It just goes in the same direction it was. And so once the bad news had passed and been absorbed, into the prices in the morning, there was no more news, so it just stayed where it was for most of the rest of the day. And that's not, that, that's sort of like good news. It must have been something that upset the uh, London market. Uh, hard to say though what it was. Now, let me take off from this. And I wanna show you one last, uh, thing. It's somewhat chapter 6, but it's also chapter 7. And it's a technical mathematical thing. And I'm going to show you the background of it, but I will prepare a sheet, uh, an Excel sheet with you. We'll build one together that will be able to do this so that you don't have to suffer through the mathy, for lack of a better word, part of it. And it has to do with yields. See those yields right there? And I'm not going to use this example first because this, this example is weird because we've got an inverted yield curve. It still works, but the numbers look a little bit odd. But you see those yields right there? Well, let me do one here. The yield on a one-year, the yield on a two-year, and the yield on a three-year. These are better done in whole years. Suppose the yield on a one-year treasury is 4.24%. The yield on a two-year is 4.28%. The yield on a three-year is, let's say, 4.34%. Now, these are actually composite yields to the extent that like the three like the two year that would be ending price over beginning price to the one over two years minus one the one year 
would be the ending price over the beginning price to the 1 over 1 minus 1. Remembering that formula for finding yields. And the 3 year would be the ending price over the beginning price to the 1 over 3 years minus 1. That's what those yields would be. They are what the market's price is at the beginning, at the end, divided by the beginning to 1 over the number of years. That's how you calculate a yield. But they really aren't exactly what happened. See that one year is one plus the interest rate for one year. So the 1 over 1 minus 1. The 2 year, what we see is a composite, an average, a geometric average. What really happened was that there was a the 1 year times another rate, which was the 2 year. And those two equaled 1 plus the yield we see on a two-year to the second power minus one. That's what we see. But inside of that was a one-year, the current rate, plus a rate through the second year. We call that thing a forward rate. The rate that is actually the market think is going to happen in the second year. Not the average of what happened in one through one year one and two, but it that it is actually two rates, the one year and then the second year. And the third one is actually the one year rate plus that forward rate from the second year times one plus the rate from the third year. Oops. I shouldn't say that minus one. I should leave that minus one off. And that's the rate that we actually see is one plus. The one that we see in those yield curve charts is the three year to the third power. You don't need to worry too much about that. Just follow what, how I calculate these. Now the first year rate is a yield and it is the first year's forward. We're seeing the forward, the first year. It's right there in that chart, 5.03%. In my example here, the one year is 4.24%. But the second year, rate for the first year is 4.24%. Now, the second year, 1 plus 0.0424 times 1 plus the forward rate, which we don't see, should be 
1 plus, where the hell did I write it? Oh, 0 0.0428 to the second power. This is how we can tease out the forward rate. What the markets think the rate interest rate is going to be in just the second year. The yield tells us what the average of the first and second year is. But the forward rate would tell us what the market thinks just the second year would be. So I can work this around. 1 plus R1 would be 1 plus 0 0.0428 squared over... That's 1 plus R2, I'm sorry. Over 1 plus 0.0424. So R2, the forward second year, just the second year rate, just the second year rate. I would pull up the calculator and I would say, okay, I'll take the 1.028 squared and divide it by the 1.04. 024, I'm sorry, 0424. And then I would minus the 1. Is that right? Oh, I, I screwed that up. I, I keyed something in wrong. Let me do, let me fix that. That was, I put a 1.028 instead of 1.0428. So it's 1.0428 squared divided by 1.0424 and then minus one. So the forward rate, the second year interest rate, the market thinks it's going to be 'Cause if I did one point zero four two four times one point zero four three two, the result would be one plus point zero four two eight squared. This is technically called the Fisher effect. And it's saying, okay, you put together a 1.24 a uh, 4.24 interest rate for the first year with a 4.32% for the second year and the overall effect is a 4.28% for the two years combined and that's what the market would be creating with the price of the two year treasury now taking it one more time now that i have the one year and the forward on the second year, 
I can say that 1 plus 0 0.0424, the first year, times 1 plus 0.0432 in the second year, times what the forward rate, 1 plus the forward rate of the third year, should be 1 plus 0 0.0434 to the third power. If you don't see how I'm doing this, you're not in any bad shape at all. Once you got it in Excel and you do it a couple of times, you get the hang and it begins to make more sense to you. But solving this, one plus the three, third year forward rate would be one plus 0 0.0434 to the third power over 1 plus 0 0.0424 times 1 plus 0.0432. Now this is where you have to watch out for your math, for, for your calculator entry. Make sure that denominator is all in parentheses. But if I do that, if I do that, and if I do it right, I would take 1.0434 to the third power divided by, I'm going to open parentheses, and I'm going to put that, those two down there, 1.0424 times 1.0432 is that? Yeah, 1.0432. Close the parentheses so I hold that denominator together and then minus the one that was on the other side. So the third year forward rate is 0 0.0447. The third year, three year, the third year forward rate is four point four seven. So this is what the yield curve says: four point two four, four point two eight, four point three four. But the year by year would be the four point two four, the four point three two and the 4.47. That would be each year taken separately instead of as a composite. It's hidden in the data, but it's useful for us, especially for things like long-term planning of your investments. Okay, we're going to do a project this year. So we would start with a risk-free rate of 4.24% to do to figure out what our capital cost of capital is. Well, what if we're going to wait till the second year? Well, the yield curve says that the rate will be 4.28. No, it doesn't. It says that in the second year, the markets are right now expecting the rate to be 4.32%.
Well, what happens if we put it off till the third year? Well, should we look start with a risk-free rate of 4.34%? No, you shouldn't. Because right now, the markets are actually whispering that in the third year, the rates we expect are going to be starting with a risk-free rate of 4.47%. So these are the rates that are actually being hinted in that year that we're considering starting a project. The yield curve is just like an average of the rates for two years or the rates for three years. And like I said, I'm not going to ask this on, a, on the midterm. I don't want my tires slashed. And when you get down to doing the calculations, I'll have a, an Excel spreadsheet that can do the, the heavy lifting for you to get these. And we usually, it's kind of tricky when we go past three years, and I'll show you why. The yield curve, you see we got the one, two, three, so we can build it. But when you get past three, the next treasury security that is listed is at five years. So you've got a gap of years. So you, so you get sort of like composite forwards after the third year. But it's useful for the intermediate term planning for one, two, and three years to know what the markets are saying in uh, the year given that we are going to start a project, what base rate, risk-free rate, are we looking at for that? That was a lot like work. And again, don't be too concerned about it. You got a question on the homework like this, but and there's a little bit in the book about it, but I will also provide you with an Excel sheet that will make it a little bit uh, more tolerable to do these calculations. But for the rest of this lecture, this is the introduction to bonds. This is all terminology and concepts. Now, the first thing that I would remind you, and I've said this on many occasions, and it, be it begins to get to be a little more important now, is that the bond market is 10 times the size of the stock market. It is a vast ocean of securities. But you don't hear about the bond market. All you hear about are stocks. Well, this stock went up today. This stock went down. I think this stock is a great investment. Or I would, put a, I would sell this stock. You don't hear a lot of talk about bonds. Hardly ever do you hear about them. The reason is simple. Stocks are exciting. They can go all over the place. You can go from a great price to zero in a day or two, or you can become a millionaire in a couple of weeks with stock prices skyrocketing. That cannot happen with, well, it almost would never happen with bonds. It would almost never happen with bonds. I mean, theoretically, a stock price, it wouldn't happen. But a stock price could go to infinity. A bond price can't. It just cannot do that. More to the point, 
the bond market is overall boring. The price of a bond from day to day, up a little bit, down a little bit. You're not going to get anyone to listen to your investment advice if you're saying, well, bonds went up three cents today. Boy, that was, I am exhausted from watching that. It does, it's not interesting at all. And there's good reason. There are two reasons kind of interrelated. The first reason is that bondholders, the lenders, have the prior claim to cash flows. Before uh, shareholders can get a penny, in a dividend or in plow back into the operations of the corporation to grow the company, that whatever is owed to the bondholders in the current period must be satisfied. So there is much more certainty with bonds than there is stocks. Unless the company goes to hell, you're going to get your interest uh, payment. You're going to get your, your nice little check in the mail. So that's the first reason. The second reason is that bonds have an anchor. At the end of a bond's life, you get your money. Uh, the lender gets the money back. So in other words, it is not whatever the sky's the limit or whatever. No, you get a specific amount of money. What you lent comes back. And so, in other words, there's this rock-solid anchor, and so the price can't go very far from that anchor. It can't. Because at the end, you get your $1,000. As uh, our base, as we always have 1000 as the uh, index base, the face value. You're going to get it back. So how can the bond go all over the place if there is an endpoint with a specific amount of money at that endpoint? Stocks, there's no endpoint. Stocks live forever, at least there theoretically. So it could go to to any value, zero or to infinity and beyond. So that's why bonds are not as volatile as stocks. One the bondholders know they get their money before any shareholders get theirs, prior claim versus residual claim. And there is a fixed amount that happens at the end of the life of the bond. So taking those two into account together, let's talk about the mechanism of a bond. Now, I use the word bond here generically. Remember I had told you about bills, uh, one year or less in, uh, in time, notes two to seven, 10, 15 years, whatever. And um, uh, bonds, they are from 15 or 20 years on out to 25, 30. Some bonds even go out to 50 years. And there are even some that go longer than that for extremely long-term projects. So bonds, um, uh, but I use the term bond for any of them. A bond, and I will use you as my example straw person. Okay, you are a corporation and um, you would like to 
borrow money. I am an investment bank. You don't want to have me buy stock. You want to do it as debt. Now, there are reasons why that would be. Remember that once stock is out there, if you issued stock through me, that stock is eternal. A bond, you're done with it at the end of the life of the bond. So, taking all of that into consideration, what's going to happen, sort of in a really summarized way, you will come to me And you'll start out with, I should like to borrow $10 million. Okay? So I'll say, well, let's get to work on it. Now, I will probably syndicate that bond. In other words, syndicate the issue. I'll get together with some other uh, investment banking houses and we'll divvy up how we'll allocate the $10 million we lend you. Now, what you are going to do is issue a security to me. It's a bond. You sell me a bond. That means you are, and I buy it. You are, you, you borrow money from me. You are issuing a bond. I am the purchaser of the bond. The price I'm paying is what I am lending you. It's like with a home mortgage. You decide that you want a nice, wonderful house. You go to me a banker. What you're actually doing is issuing a bond, and I am agreeing to buy that bond, and the price is what I lend you. That's what's going on. Technically speaking, you are the issuer of the bond. I am the investor in that bond. So... We work it out. We, we fight it out. We talk. We argue about all the ifs, ands, ors, and buts of it. And what ultimately comes of that is what's called a bond indenture agreement. This is the loan contract. For the first 20 years that I taught, I had never seen the actual bond indenture agreement. I'd never seen one. I was, uh, but some years back, I was going to go. I was going to visit a um, friend of mine who works for an I worked for an IB in New York City, and uh, I said, Marty, this is kind of a weird request. Could, do you have any bond indenture agreements so I could just see one? He said, sure, I got one. I got a bunch of them. Probably hundreds. I don't think he had hundreds. But he, he actually, when I went into his office, he put it on the table. It was a binder. It was thick. It was a contract from hell. And there are hundreds of thousands of these done. And I... Uh, so I got to see one and confirmed with all legalese the who, the what, the when, the how much, how long. Those are parts of it are called the covenants of the bond indenture agreement. The covenants.
Yeah, the who. The how much. The coupon rate. That's the interest rate. Sometimes you'll hear me say coupon. Technically, the coupon is a dollar amount. The rate is a percentage. Uh, now, that usually is not set until right before the loan to make sure that that coupon is as close as possible to the prevailing interest rate on debt securities of that risk level. So that one is like the last thing that's typed in. So let's say we have um, let's say a hundred million. So the coupon rate, let's say it's eight percent. So what that means is that the interest every year will be eight million dollars and this is where I have to stop for a minute because consumer loans are not like corporate and and government loans in a consumer loan we calculated those payments on a loan well those payments pay the interest for the period and they also pay some of the balance of the loan off. They service the debt, that's the interest, and they amortize the loan. That's the balance going down. With corporate and government debt, all that happens during the life of the loan is the service. The borrower pays the coupon, does not touch the principal, the face value, as we call it. Doesn't touch it. At the end, one last coupon is paid and the whole hundred million is paid back all at once. Now, practically speaking, they're not going to do that. The bond covenants will have something like a sinking fund. Well, the company has to put in $10 million every year into a fund so that way before the bond is due, it's paid off. Or another trick on this, and I don't know how popular it is, is the borrower agrees to buy back some of the debt, pay off some of the debt, that is, every year over the, first, uh, over the life. And then by the end... There's not 100 million, there might be uh, 5 million. They're, they have to agree that they're killing off some of the debt by buying it back in the open market. But one, oh, one way or the other. Okay, now the next thing is the maturity date. When does it have to be paid off? Let's say that it's 2044. This is a 20-year loan. Twenty forty-four. So in other words, for the next 20 years, every year, 
the lender or whoever has bought the bond from the lender gets a check for $8 million. And then in the year 2044, one last coupon is paid and the $100 million is killed, paid off all at once. That's how corporate and government debt works. It's not like consumer debt, where at the end, your last payment is just a regular payment and you get the title to the car or the title to the house or whatever. This is different. Corporate and government debt works like this. Now, unless otherwise specified, we always do things with a base face value of $1,000. So in other words, technically, the borrower here would have issued 100,000 $1,000 bonds. It just makes it a lot easier for us to do the calculations if we do it this way. This is called the face value. You'll hear me say face or face value on a calculator or in Excel, it's FV. This is called, once the bond is out there and it's being traded, bought, and sold, we call the thousand the par value, par. Kind of unfortunately, you probably won't see the price. You will see something that is one-tenth of the price. The reference is on the hundred. So if the price of the bond, let's say, is $992, it would quote at 99.20 or in our parlance, 99.20. If the price of the bond were, let's say, $1,015, then we would quote 101.50 on the 100. That's not a dollar amount. Unfortunately, there are some places where they show that as a dollar amount. It's not. I have a great story about that. Uh, Many years ago, before a lot of people had computers, there were a few rich people who had uh, computers and they had access to the pre-internet and they could get uh, stock prices, bond prices. This one rich fellow I knew, he was an optometrist, he, had, he thought he was a genius and he put in an order. He saw these bonds and he bought 10 of them. Not two hours later, he was cussing and swearing. He called me on the phone, cussing me out. And he said, I just got ripped off. I just got $9,980 taken out of my account for 10 bonds that cost $99.80 each. I'm like, Frank, you moron. That was a quote. That's not the price. Who made that up? Well, that's been around for about two centuries. Here's why. Back before there was an internet in that ancient, ancient time, the 19th century, 
20th century for most of that, the Wall, Wall Street would, sun would come up and then all the traders and brokers and dealers and wheelers and dealers would be <coughs> go down the Wall Street and there were these printing shops that would print out on a broad sheet the ending prices uh, for the night before. So all of these fancy people would buy their giant broadsheet and look at everything and get ready for the morning's trading. Well, the thing was that they had to get literally hundreds and hundreds of stock and bond prices onto the columns of that sheet. To save a little bit of column space, they made the bond prices uh, a tenth. That's where that tradition of quoting on the 10th came from. And stock prices, only it, since, well, probably right around when you were born, stock prices didn't used to be quoted in dollars and cents. They were quoted in dollars and fractions. Like uh, a stock would be 17 and a quarter. And they wouldn't, so all they would have to do is just put not $17.25, it would be 17 and then a tiny little space and a one, which was one of four. So that's where that tradition came from, if it sounds a little odd. Here's what's, for you though, here's what drives me crazy. There are two big things that we use Excel to calculate, the bond price and the bond yield. Okay, now, Calculating the bond price, it comes out as a price, $992 or $1,015. But the bond quote, you have to enter information on the hundred. You don't put in the price, you put it on the hundred. So when you get to that uh, Excel sheet that I have built for bonds, you'll see a big warning on the hundred. Just to tell you, don't put in, I'll give you a price, that's what we all talk, we talk in prices. But you don't put in a price, you put it in a tenth of the price, for God's sake. Don't ask me why, it's just that's how it's done. Oh, Lord, okay. But anyway, let me go on here about this, these two things. Here's Now the bond price is going to swing around the face value. Because at the end, you're going to get your $1,000 back. So it's not going to go far, usually, from, the, um, from that $1,000. It will swing around it slowly. It's almost never would it be a really strong movement. Like stocks can go up by percentage of 2%, half a percent. These don't move very much at all from day to day in normal situations. But why do they move at all? If you're going to get $1,000 back at the end, why would the bond price move from $1,000? That's what you're going to get back. And the coupons are going to pay you, make it good all along the way, so they're servicing it completely. So it should stay at 1000 Here's why it won't stay quite at a thousand. You see, this rate, the coupon rate, is set at the day of the loan. There's a, a, almost the day of the loan. Well, what happens if interest rates in the economy go up? 
the lender is stuck with 8% for 20 long years in this case. So in that case, I'm going to say this sucks. And there's going to be a lot of investors who will want to get rid of these bonds whose coupon is lower than the market wants. So that, in that case like that, the price will go down. If the coupon is less than the market price, we call the market price the yield, the market rate. Let, let me put that as market rate, not price. Let me put that as market rate. That will cause the bond price to go down below a thousand. We say that below a thousand, the bond is selling at a discount to par. Reflecting the fact that the coupon, which is fixed for the life of the loan, is below what the market wants. On the other hand, suppose that interest rates fall below 8%. Well, that would make the market happy. You would have uh, buyers trying to get a hold of these. So when the coupon is larger than the market rate, the yield, then the bond is going to push up above 1,000. In this case, we say the bond is selling at a premium to par. They don't go far. I mean, you got a company. Another thing that can happen is that after a bond is issued, the company itself could become riskier. So the market will say 8% isn't enough to cover the risk of Or a company could become healthier. So, it, uh, so sometimes it's not just the economy that can move a premium and discount. It can be the company itself. Like, for example, Sears, it was a very, very healthy company many years ago. Its bonds sold right at about par. But then it started getting into terrible trouble, so those old bonds that were priced when the company was healthy, investors said that's not enough to cover the risk of this. And so there was a lot of selling of those bonds and the price went down. And on the other hand, there are some companies that were, at the time they borrowed the money, they were pretty darn risky. And so they had high coupon rates. But as time went along, they got healthier and stronger. And so now they would never have to pay that much in interest. And so those bonds sell at a premium to par because the coupon is way higher than the risk of the company is now. And you see it play out both ways. I, I mean, it, but like I said, it rarely goes too far. However, some companies, if a company is like JCPenney or Sears, they have virtually died. In a case like that, there's so much selling that the price goes way, way down. So the yield goes way, way up on them. And um, uh, those we actually call junk bonds. That's the, okay, junk is not a nice term. We say high yield investments.
those, those are out there, but most bonds, they float around the, um, the par value. But you might notice that I am linking this up to price and yield. Notice when the yield goes up above the coupon, the price goes down. As the yield goes down, the price goes up. I've been saying that almost every day about those bond quotes that you see uh, in, uh, on, the on the ticker board. It's, that's what's going on here. Price and yield are inversely related. Now, uh, oh, I, there, there's one more, term, one more thing I want to give you over here just to cover something. The term of a bond. The term is how long the bond has left in its life. Like right now, see that 2044 bond there? Its term is 20 years. But suppose that we all live to the year 2030, yeah, like that's going to happen for me. But we live that, well then the term would be 14. Now, oddly, really the term is all that matters to finding, to doing the math calculations, price and yield. Strangely, and I'm not sure why this is, but Excel wants to know when the bond was issued. It's called the settlement date. For the life of me, I don't know why they, Excel wants this. So you kind of, to create an Excel sheet, I kind of had to do some fancy footwork uh, because usually you know the date of maturity and you know the term. But no, Excel wants the date of maturity, the term, and the stupid settlement date, when it was actually issued. And I'm like, for, for a lot of bonds, you don't see that in the quote. When did the, what was the date? They want it down to the day. And so I, I figured out how to fool Excel on that, but I would certainly not expect any sane person to bother. Hmm. But let me go on, let me get out of this more technical side of it here probably forgot something I always do on this, but oh, what kinds of bonds are out there? It is a veritable bestiary of bonds. It just drives uh, a normal person. What kinds of bonds are there? What kind of a bond did you just name? The first classic famous bond would be a treasury. The government borrows money. If it's borrowing it for a few months, we call it a treasury bill, a T-bill. If it's borrowing it for an intermediate amount of time, one to seven years, one to ten years, we call it a treasury note, a T-note. If it's selling for a longer time period, like 15, 20, 25, 30 years, 20 or 30 years, we would call it a treasury bond. Show you something right now. I'm going to pull this out and I'll ask you, madam, 
at the very top of this $1 bill, what do those three words at the top say? Federal Reserve Note. Federal Reserve Note. You can check it for yourself. This is a note. This is an IOU the government owes you. That's what it is. It's a, it's a bill. How, how do they pay this off? This is a treasury. Actually, this is a treasury note. How do they pay it off? Well, in five to seven years or so, this goes back to the Fed and they shred it up and they print another one or two. That's how they pay off. That's how the government pays off its debts. Is it just prints more, more of them. Okay, that's a treasury. Now they are typically, I mean, an auction. The government borrows money because we don't collect enough taxes for our spending levels. What they'll do is they'll hold auctions where they will put different variety, uh, a variety of these on the table. Sometimes, sometimes it's just one. They'll put maybe put some T-bills, some T-notes, and T-bonds on the table. And then investors will come and buy them. In other words, those investors are lending the government money, which the government will pay back. You buy a one-year T-bill. They, they, they do them, the short stuff, they just do it at a discount. So you pay $980, and in one year, you'll get $1,000. So you get $20 for an investment of $980. One more there. Well, who buys these? Who is lending the government money? Well, in a backhanded way, you do to some extent. But the vast majority is through investment funds, mutual funds, trusts. And the biggest player that lends our government money buys that debt, those debt securities, are nations. China is a massive buyer, a massive lender. Well, how do the Chinese have all that money? That they remember they have to buy in dollars. How do they have all those dollars? Oh, that's because we buy their stuff. You buy a toaster from uh, from China, you are importing a toaster, and you're exporting that number of dollars, which then become foreign reserve in the People's Bank of China. China can't use those dollars anywhere in the United States. So what do they do? They just lend us back the money that we paid them, to the tune of billions and billions of dollars. Who else does? The Arabs do, because they, we export, we import oil and export dollars to their central banks. Japan, they, we buy their import cars and their radios and stuff. We export dollars to the Bank of Japan. Uh, a big one is Canada, is a massive uh, buyer because they, these are countries that support us because we can't afford to live the way we do with all of our spending. And it's not the, this, it's on everything from services that we all rely on, uh, of actually welfare and all that is a very small part, our defense industry to make ourselves the armed weapon of the world, is a massive amount. 
we just spend money hand over fist, and yet we can't raise our taxes enough to pay for it so the rest of the world takes care of us babies because we can't care for our own dirty diapers. That's just the reality of it. Just a little warning shot to you there. Now, here's another interesting thing that the book doesn't mention. Agency debt. Agency debt is debt that is issued by agencies of the United States government. Now, treasuries are low coupon because they're backed by the full faith and credit of the United States. Agencies, however, some agencies borrow money on their own. They issue their own debt. Um, an example of an agency, the T Tennessee Valley Authority, TVA. There are a number of agencies out there. They borrow their own money. Not the, the Treasury doesn't borrow for them. They borrow for themselves. Now, an interesting, uh, two interesting points about that. Agency debt technically does not have, is not backed by the full faith and credit of the United States. We kind of assume that if an agency was about to default, the Fed, the Treasury would come in and make, it, make the debt whole. But it's not in writing. Now, agency debt, that's one thing. Agency debt, another part about it is that when we see the national debt, that's usually just the sum of all of the treasury paper out there. It does not include the agency paper out there. You have to dig to see what that is. And it can be a whopper. Now, I'm, I'm, I may be a little wrong about the timeline of this, but the agency debt was surging in the first decade of the 21st century. It was going up dramatically to the point where it was a noticeable part of our overall debt obligation as a country. It fell in the Obama administration down to, uh, surprisingly, and I'm not sure how, but it was, a lot of it had to do with the fees that were being paid to the agencies by their constituencies, and they were paying off their debt, and they weren't needing to borrow more. And then it has gone back, it went back up after that administration. It went up noticeably. And I, if I remember the numbers right, it has begun to ease back off. But it is a noticeable amount of money uh, on the national debt. You take the national debt that's official and this shadow debt that is belongs to the age that was issued by the agencies, it's kind of a noticeable little piece of the, of the overall debt the country owes. So there's that. Now, the next one are munis, municipals. Municipals, what we call munis, are issued by sovereigns below the level of the feds. States, cities, school districts. Now the thing about munis is that the interest is tax-free at the federal level. So these are, so they carry a lower coupon than a normal corporate debt would because you don't pay uh, any federal tax. 
but that is advantageous only to the highest tax bracket investors because they're the ones who would benefit the most from tax-free status. You should not buy munis. You just shouldn't because they pay a low coupon rate because they, that's adjusted for the fact that they're tax-free to the richest people. So if you get a, $1,000 in interest from a muni, well, you don't pay uh, that, that tax of 39%. That'd be uh, $390. But if you're a lower class citizen, you would, let's say you're in a 10% tax bracket, all you'd get would be $100. And you could do much better by just buying a plain old corporate debt instrument. You'd make more, even though you pay tax on it, you'd make more off the coupon on a full, fully taxed instrument. Munis, uh, there are different varieties. And I had some uh, genius in my uh, first class, which is finance majors, try to make a big thing about distinctions. But overall, muni municipals, they're like a, a city wants a new water system or a new sewerage system. Well, that's going to be a long-term obligation. They would go to the muni's market, to high-tax high bracket investors, and they would sell them a bond issue. Well, we've got to fix the sewer system. Okay, that's going to cost us $15 million to do it. Okay, they issue $15 million in munis. A school district wants to build a new high school. That would be technically a muni, a municipal. Now, some municipals are just general obligations. But some, and the terminology has changed a little bit over the years, but a lot of times, like a school district, they will raise the property tax for, let's say, the life of the bond, 20 years. And that extra will be how they pay the uh, bond, the, uh, the bond for the school. Uh, that way the bond holders say, okay, we know we're going to get our money because we've got this revenue that is specifically earmarked to pay us. And that's why you vote for these school district tax levies. That is the voters' approval to raise your property taxes so that this bond can be issued and taken care of. That's how it works. Now, there are a few other kinds of bonds in this animal uh, thing. Classic, classic are the corporate bonds. And they come in different risk categories, triple A, double A. And as, a, as it goes down in quality, then of course the coupon would be higher. That's why companies want to get these rating agencies to see them as very healthy. Because if you get a triple A rating, you can, uh, you can negotiate a bond coupon that is lower than if you've got a double A or a single A. As a matter of fact, that was what happened with Netflix. Its bond rating, a couple of years ago, it borrowed over a billion dollars on notes. And the rating agency said, are you joking? This is this bad news. You're not in all that great shape. 
And so they gave the bond a junk rating. I think it was a B rating, if I'm not mistaken, one of the Bs. And, of course, the coupon was stupidly high. At the time, that was a, a very high coupon rate on that bond. On, on the, they call it a note. It was 15 years. That's what drives me crazy. 15 years, they called it a note instead of a bond. But one way or the other, the coupon was rather steep because it had a low grade, low rating. Now, there's other kinds of bonds. One is a foreign bond. They are actually kind of popular. A foreign bond is a bond that is issued, but it pays its coupon and its face back in another currency. Like there are companies here in the United States that issue uh, bonds that are denominated in euros. We pay you in euros, we, uh, the coupons will come to you in euros, and the face value will be paid in euros. That would be a foreign bond. There are countries where they issue foreign bonds here. We will pay you in American dollars, <coughs> even though that might not be our country's currency. One that I'm very familiar with, uh, I teach in uh, in the summers in uh, the Republic of Panama, and uh, they issued two different bonds, and I think the total of the two different issues was a couple of billion dollars. It was not their currency, the Balboa. It was dollars. They would pay the coupons and they would pay the interest. Now, why did they do that? Well, first of all, the Balboa is pegged to the dollar. But there was another reason. Remember I told you about China? What currency do they hold hundreds of billions of dollars? The People's Bank of China? It's dollars. So then the uh, Panamanians were not stupid. They issued their money in dollars because then they were saying, China, you got dollars, we will take your dollars. We'll pay you back in dollars. And so they, by denominating in dollars, they magnetized their need for capital by making it pay off in dollars. There is even one more that I would mention. Commodity bonds. Uh, the famous example was after World War II. The United States committed itself to rebuilding Europe. It, Europe, basically, uh, the Allies and the Axis had turned Europe into a, uh, a, um, a debris field. Everything was brought to the frickin' ground. There's a good movie that showed it kind of in its spectacular destruction. It was called Museum Men a few years ago. Good movie, but we said, we'll rebuild you. And it was in our interest because otherwise the damn Soviets would have said, we will rebuild you, comrade. So we did it. But what we did was we issued the bonds that would pay back in gold from Fort Knox. It was a brilliant idea because, of course, the bond issues were subscribed fully. Oh, wow, gold? The bad part was that you know who was buying most of those bonds? The rich, ancient European families. 
So what we did was, they lent us the money, we paid it back in our gold, in the countries where they lived, that we rebuilt. We nearly wiped out Fort Knox, by the way. Anyway, that's all I have for you today. I thank all of you.